Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Erin Page. Today, I'm joined by Oklahoma City Mayor David Holt, the youngest mayor in our city's history, who a year ago was featured with his family on Metro Family's Father's Day cover. Much has changed in the last year. Thanks for joining us, Mayor, to talk about all that's happened since. Sure, absolutely. Thank you for having me, and thanks for the magazine and the work you do. It's a, it's a great resource for families here in our city. Thank you so much. Well, first, let me commend you for the care and intentionality you and your entire team, as well as our city county health department, have led our city with through this COVID-19 pandemic. I'm sure a health pandemic of this nature was not on the list of things you anticipated during your second year as mayor. Uh, as you've issued various proclamations and kept our community briefed, it's been very clear how personally you take your responsibilities as mayor. What have been some of the biggest challenges for you personally and what's kept you going as you've navigated the impact to our citizens' health and our city's economy? Well, I think just the, the especially in the early weeks, uh, which felt like years, you know, I think it was just the uh, sheer volume of, of work and things to do. Uh, I mean, it was, it was 24-7 um, for, gosh, six weeks probably. Uh, of COVID-19 and it was funny because you would think you know every every appointment on my calendar was canceled so you would think that uh, I would have had a lot of time on my hands but there was it was just an endless stream of issues to address and uh, and and it just seemed like you just go 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 and then it was just time to collapse and wake up again and I'd say the way I got through it I mean there was an upside and a silver lining to this but I think a lot of other people experienced as well um, which was that I was home and I, and I still actually largely am. And so were my kids and my wife and she's the, the head of a state agency. She's got uh, her hands full as well. But um, so we're working during the day, but you know, we're together and, and in the evenings, you know, we would watch movies at night, which we never really did. Not certainly not on school nights, but there wasn't really a school night anymore. So we were, we were able to spend a lot of time together and take walks and watch movies and, and uh, I think that was, um, and is still really uh, a silver lining to, to that situation and uh, maybe helped offset the, uh, the obviously excruciating decisions and issues that, uh, that I had to deal with as mayor. So speaking of your kids and your family, we've talked with a lot of Metro parents about what it's been like to parent during this pandemic. Uh, you mentioned your wife, who is interim executive director of the Oklahoma Office of Juvenile Affairs. So both of you have very impactful careers in our community. What has it been like to try to balance your mayoral duties with being a dad and helping your two kids walk through the emotional challenges of this pandemic? Um, well, honestly, and I feel very blessed. Our kids have handled this really well. Um, and we were, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, you know, so they go to Oklahoma City Public Schools and they did a great job of preparing curriculum and packets and our kids would, would get those. We did not do, I'd be the first to admit, we did not do a great job of homeschooling. We were not, we were not like regimented and overseeing their education. We were very pleased, and this is what, like, to take it back to the original point, I feel very blessed in that our kids really occupied themselves really well. And obviously there weren't any activities. There was no play dates. There were no sports. Um, uh, George and Maggie at 10 and eight um, got along really well. Um, 
and I speak of this as if it's past tense, we're still living in this with some sure. extent, but uh, do get along really well and we're playing and weren't on screens nearly as much as I was worried that they would be. They did a lot of reading and that was sort of, at least in my mind, I justified um, their, uh, you know, their lack of, of structured schooling with the, the fact that it was being replaced with hours of reading for both of them. And I kind of felt like that's never wasted time. And so that, that was good. Early on, I should also say, uh, we did, I don't know how we got down this road, but I started ordering, of course, everybody was getting a lot of Amazon packages in that time period. I, uh, we started ordering a Lego set uh, about uh, every week. And, and that would kill the better part of a day, but sort of the anticipation of receiving it was also part of the adventure. And, uh, and because we would, you know, maybe order it on Friday or Saturday, it wouldn't arrive till Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, and maybe that would occupy them for 24 hours. But, um, and then the cycle would begin again. And honestly, we probably did that six times, you know, that was probably a good month and a half of, of the Lego uh, uh, adventure. And my son would do the architecture ones that were city skylines. And he's got this shelf now that's just amazing. I mean, it's spectacular of all these fascinating city skylines. I mean, I'm jealous of them. So <laughs> anyways, it was, that was one part of one little funny little aspect of our pandemic experience that I guess we'll remember. Um, and was one way to kind of get through, uh, find something to look forward to and, and focus on. Everybody had their own thing. That Lego, a Lego set a week turned out to be ours. I love that. And you're so right. I have bragged on my kids a lot that they have been much more resilient and tolerant through all of this than I have been. So um, they have been a silver lining for my quarantine and pandemic journey as well. So when Oklahoma City's shelter-in-place order expired and we began to move through these phases of reopening, um, I remember you voicing your concern about the potential to put any of our citizens in harm's way as it relates to the coronavirus and that because the virus is still present here, you felt like you might be just as reluctant to open our state up on July 1st as you were mm -hmm. on May 1st. Yeah. Uh, so as we're heading into June, into this third phase of reopening, how do you feel about the state of our city, our citizens' response, and what's going to be key in these summer months to keep our data trending downward? Yeah, you know, I was, you're referring to, especially a speech I gave in late April about um, the reopening. And, you know, the, the timeline was in many ways driven by uh, the, the statewide lifting of restrictions, which really affected us, because I'm ultimately only the mayor of about half the people who live in my metro. So it's, it's not really practical, especially in a, in a public health crisis, for me to try to move independently of, of the other communities when the state is moving in a different direction. So what I tried to do in that, in that speech and in that time frame was just be really candid with people. Uh, I've always thought as a leader, it seems like it served me well when I've just been transparent with people about my thought process and not just explain the final decision, but show my work, you know? And so I talked about, you know, on the one hand, we need a shelter in place to stay safe, right? On the other hand, we can't do that for two years. We, I, just, it's just not realistic, I recognize that. And, and this virus is likely to be with us for that length of time. Um, on the one hand, um, you know, I, I articulated, as you said, that I was always gonna feel this level of discomfort 
uh, about reopening. It, it, as long as the virus is here, you know, I'm not going to be comfortable with uh, moving into a phase where there's more opportunities for spreading it. Um, but kind of going back to the earlier principle, I, there's, we're going to have to do that. So, so I kind of just laid all that out for people and, and even got emotional because, I mean, I, I recognized that this was a dangerous phase we were moving into after so much hard work to keep our people safe. Um, so what we did do is sort of a compromise, recognizing that we couldn't shelter in place anymore, recognizing there were external factors um, that were forcing us to, to move into a new phase on May 1st. We put in some conditions, you know, like, you know, hairstylists and restaurant servers have to wear masks and tables have to be six feet apart and that kind of stuff. And I think that really helped with the transition. Um, and I have been, you know, I'm not someone invested in a narrative. You know, sometimes this issue has become political and, you know, people want every single fact to uh, validate their narrative that this isn't really that big a deal or validate their narrative that it's so much worse than we, than we think. And, and I just want to follow the data and the truth. And, and so I'm pleasantly surprised that our numbers have in fact declined. And I really attribute that um, to the fact that people are taking it seriously. And I said that, you know, around that same time period, I said, if you will, if you will wear a mask in public and, and even more importantly, wash your hands and keep your distance from people, you can re-engage in some of these activities that we have not been doing for the last few weeks. Um, but you got to do those things. You got to take it seriously. It's not life as we knew it back in February. And I think for the most part, see, if you're mayor, you get every, you get every uh, report of everyone who is standing too close to somebody else in line at the grocery store or or whatever it is, you know, I'm like, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the destination for every tattletale in Oklahoma City. But, but my, my sense is, despite that, that most people are taking it seriously and, and taking precautions, and they must be, because uh, our trend lines continue to go down, whether it's new cases or hospitalizations or just symptom tracking. Um, you know, we are definitely in a downward trajectory. It's not, it's not like, falling off a cliff. I mean, it is very gradual, but it is definitely, it is a textbook bending of the curve um, like you, like we talked about, you know, heading into this pandemic. So um, having said that, every day the data also validates that it's still very much in our community and we have to, we have to keep it up if we want to continue to see that success level. So, you know, you'll, You'll continue to hear from me and other leaders in the months ahead, you know, to wash your hands, keep your distance, wear your mask in public situations where social distancing is difficult. Um, and, you know, I hope that we can continue to maintain these trends. And the summer months may also help. We don't know that for a fact, but, you know, there's some history with that. Um, and I think in the meantime, then, we've got to be working on creating the testing and tracing infrastructure um, and, and everything else we need. To be prepared for the fall, I think there's a very real, history tells us and science tells us there's a very real possibility um, that we'll kind of have another wave come back uh, that is as strong as what we experienced in the spring. And when, it, when we experienced it in the spring, we had not had to live through something quite like that, maybe for 100 years. And this time, though, we need to be better prepared so that we aren't caught quite so flat-footed. We will have had time to do so. And so that's that's what I'm doing as much as emphasizing the now, I'm also working to make sure that we as a community are ready for the fall. 
in terms of our city's economy, um, we were doing well. Our unemployment rate was low when we were hit with this pandemic and obviously both have been negatively affected. As we move through these phases to reopen, what has the city been doing? What will the city continue to do to help especially our small and locally owned businesses recover? Yes, I mean, as you said, we were the number one lowest unemployment rate in the country entering the pandemic. We had actually not been in that slot for a few years. And then finally, the final uh, unemployment report we received uh, heading into the pandemic uh, gave us the number one spot. So we had a great foundation to build upon. And uh, obviously, when we got that news, it was bittersweet because we knew a lot had happened in the intervening weeks. And that I don't know if we're number one now or not, but even if we are, it's it's still double-digit employment unemployment. So, um, having said that, I'm bullish on our future. A because of that strong foundation we're built upon, and B, you know, the good things are still happening. And we had um, some of the darkest days were brightened um, a few weeks ago when all of a sudden, you know, when it had just been you know news story after news story regarding unemployment, we got the news that Costco you know, wants to make a deal with us for a thousand new jobs, high paying jobs relative to the, you know, county average, $60,000 uh, per, per job, uh, back office, you know, white collar work. Um, and we're getting closer to finalizing that deal. And we've done, you know, the incentive part of it uh, from the city hall perspective. And, and then Heartland announced they're going to be bringing, you know, about 400 more jobs uh, to their, to their, offices downtown. And so, you know, it's like a few good stories like that sort of helped remind us what what was really true here, that, that we've got some good things going on. And we do also have, regardless of the pandemic, some obvious some challenges in the oil and gas industry. But, you know, again, the oil and gas industry wasn't doing uh, fantastic in February when we were the number one unemployment in the country. So we have clearly diversified our economy, uh, you know, from where it was in the 1980s and that we can weather um, a downturn in the oil and gas industry. So lots of challenges, but lots of things to build upon. And I also am quick to remind everybody that this community decided to make a nearly $1 billion investment in itself back in December with MAPS4. Uh, and that's another wonderful thing waiting for us on the other side of this pandemic. And ask any mayor in America uh, how they would feel about having a billion dollar stimulus package waiting for them uh, in their pandemic recovery. And they would all obviously uh, like that and would hardly believe that something could be possible. But we made that investment in ourselves already and that's exciting and another thing to build upon. The perfect segue, Mayor. Um, the, one of the bright spots that we all have to look forward to is MAPS4, uh, nearly a billion dollars, as you said, to invest in our community. You've just recently appointed a citizen oversight board for MAPS4. What are some of the projects that you are most excited to see come to fruition during this next phase of MAPS in our city? Yeah, so just to, you know, to recap for, for your viewers, we're, we're still finalizing the implementation of MAPS 3, which was passed in 2009. And so you still have two more senior wellness centers, the convention center, um, and the lower Scissortail Park to look forward to in the next couple of years. While that is happening, we'll be beginning the implementation of MAPS 4. And as you alluded to, we appointed the Citizen Advisory Board last week. Uh, so their work can now begin. And that has always been an, an important aspect of the implementation process. They'll really lead the charge. Uh, Teresa Rose Crook is our chair. 
Um, and so we're excited about uh, her leadership and, and the whole board as well. Um, the projects are 16 and they are very diverse. 70% of the dollars are going towards what I would characterize as neighborhood and human needs. Things like Palomar, thing, which is a you know, service provider for victims of domestic violence. Things like Diversion Hub, providing a different path for people interacting with the criminal justice system. Um, things like parks and youth centers. It's a major investment in some state-of-the-art uh, youth centers for our community. Um, those are the kinds, those life-changing projects are probably what I'm most excited about. You know, the Diversion Hub is the smallest project by dollar amount in the whole package, $17 million. But, um, but talk about something that'll have ripple effects across our community. If you get people who have been arrested, you know, for nonviolent crimes on a different path, this, this Diversion Hub will provide them with the, you know, mental health, substance abuse, and, and job training services they need uh, to get on that path. And, and that's the kind of thing that it's hard not to be excited about. And the youth centers, I mean, just, it's kind of like Boys and Girls Club. I mean, there's obviously already some models for that here in the city, but we just don't have enough of it. And so you talk to alumni of a facility like the Boys and Girls Club and see how that, um, you know, that programming changed their life is, is really powerful. And to think that we could replicate that many times over with MAPS 4 is really exciting. So those are probably the kinds of projects I'm most excited about, but I love them all. Um, you know, and there's fun stuff in there like, you know, enhancements to Chesapeake Arena to ensure that we keep our thunder. Um, you know, there's there's uh, a new multi-purpose stadium that we've never really had in our community. Um, but there's also some really serious things in there. And it, and it all meets a broad spectrum of priorities that were important to our community. Uh, and it was developed through a very inclusive process. And uh, I think this MAPS 4 is definitely the MAPS that was probably uh, most created by the people of Oklahoma City, and they embraced it with 72% passage as a result. And uh, it's going to be a fun thing to look forward to over the next decade, which it does take. A good thing that citizens have learned patience in these MAPS projects. It does take a while to, to see it all come to fruition. We have a lot of things to look forward to as a city, um, but on a somber note, as we look toward our city's future, with the recent murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, um, I've really been thinking back a lot to the powerful words you spoke during the virtual remembrance ceremony mm -hmm. commemorating the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. You talked about the dangers and delusions that come from dehumanization and that we in Oklahoma City especially have an obligation to stand up against words and actions that perpetuate that dehumanization. With protests against racial injustice happening in our city over the weekend, I think it's important to talk about what we as a city are doing to declare that racism and racial injustice will not be tolerated here. Mm -hmm. How are we striving to do better in the ways that we stand with people of color as valued members of our community and business owners? Well, it starts with some having some tough conversations and for people like myself, uh, you know, white, raised in Northwest Oklahoma City, uh, to, to face some, some uncomfortable and inconvenient realities, um, and to listen, um, and to understand why people are angry and people are disappointed um, with the progress that's been made in the last, in recent decades. You know, it's intoxicating to focus on successes there's no question that Oklahoma City is a more just place than it was in 1958. And, you know, our, 
you know, the abolishment of Jim Crow laws is wonderful. And the fact that overt acts of racism are shouted down in the public square is entirely appropriate and, and certainly an improvement from where we were uh, prior to the civil rights movement. But we also have to look at the outcomes we're seeing. And when people locked arms uh, in the 1960s and marched through our streets, they, they saw a world that where, where people didn't just not have Jim Crow laws or not have to suffer overt acts of racism. They also hoped for a world where people of all races would have you know, similar economic education, um, you know, health opportunities and outcomes. And the reality is today in 2020 that you know, somebody who grows up at Northeast 23rd and MLK is likely to have a shorter lifespan, less educational attainment, uh, less economic success than somebody who grows up uh, like I did near Northwest 122nd in Rockwell. Um, and so what are we going to do about that? You know, I mean, the first step is accepting that reality. And, and that's, that's a step that a lot of people haven't taken. So we got to do that first. And that's what a lot of the protests are about, I think, is helping people face those realities. And then you've got to talk about what government can and should do. And and I think that includes, you know, making sure that our investments are equitable. Uh, you know, I referenced MAPS 4. In MAPS 4, we have an unprecedented uh, investment in, in Northeast Oklahoma City, led by the Claire Looper Civil Rights Center, but, you know, totaling over $100 million. Um, that's clearly and explicitly in Northeast Oklahoma City. That's the kind of thing we need to do and keep doing. We also need to make sure that, you know, representation uh, is equal. Um, you know, our... Boards and commissions, when I took office, were 90% white, uh, the, the men and women volunteers who, who serve our city um, and where a lot of decisions are made. Uh, but the kids of Oklahoma City are 60% non-white. So, you know, we have to have leadership that reflects the city. And, and so that's important and something I've worked on in my appointments. Um, you know, and then as individuals and as society, we just have to do better and set aside our privilege where we can and um and accept that just because we may not have made a conscious decision um to create a world that has injustice doesn't mean that we didn't benefit from it, you know and that's a harsh thing for people to accept and and then upon acceptance decide you know how they're going to um you know react to that and and what kind of obligations they have moving forward. So I think all of that is swirling around as well, obviously, as law enforcement issues that were very, um, you know, specific to some of the, you know, the incidents like the, the George Floyd murder. So we have to make sure at our city that, you know, our police department is conversant in, in community policing and implicit bias and, and all of those um, um, you know, uh, de-escalation, you know, all of those um, subjects that, that are really important for a modern police department to uh, be, be champions of. So uh, we'll continue to have those conversations as well. There's any number, it's a target-rich environment for um, ways that we can address the, the very real and valid concerns that people are raising at these protests in Oklahoma City and around the country. 
one of the things that gives me a little bit of hope in this situation uh, is the conversations that my husband and I have been having with our three kids about mm -hmm. how as a family we can do better and the hope that we have for the next generation of Oklahomans to do better. Um, when it comes to our children, how can we as a city better support and value children and youth of color? How do we ensure we're providing learning opportunities for white children and their families to be better educated about the history and current realities of racism in our city and then to be informed about how to stand up against it? Mm -hmm. Well, we need to do all the things I just described and we also need to invest in our kids and um, and some of the things I just talked about are, are in that vein, things like youth centers. Um, you know, the educational system is outside my jurisdiction, but obviously it's the, uh, the place where a lot of what you just referred to will play out. Um, and we have to invest in education and we have to do so um, equitably. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, you know, all of that um, is important. And, and I think we as parents also have an obligation to, um, you know, at the right time when, they, when they're old enough to understand um, you know, help our kids understand better, um, at least my kids, how, how lucky they are, you know, and, and, and uh, that with good fortune comes certain obligations and how to, how to figure out uh, their place in, in building a, a more just future for our city and, and our world. Thank you. Um, you've done such meaningful work as our mayor, and I know that is going to continue. Thank you for taking time to share your perspective with us this morning. And thank you again for the way that you continue to lead our city onward and upward. Well, you're very kind. Thank you very much for the time. Thanks for the work you do and uh, be well. Thanks everyone for watching. Join us next time on Raising OKC Kids.